Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. I'll tell you one which is a, quite a cruel joke. A man goes to the doctor and the doctor says, I've got bad news and I've got really terrible news. And he said, tell me the bad news. He said, you've got 24 hours to live. And he said, well, what's the really terrible news? The doctor says, I should have told you yesterday. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke to break the ice from filmmaker and actual licensed doctor George Miller. That is not a joke. He mm. is up for an Oscar for directing the epic Mad Max Fury Road, and we will talk to him later. Also coming up, another Oscar-nominated director, Adam McKay, talks about his movie The Big Short, pop star Santi Gold parties with ghosts, and celebrity chef Roy Choi fights fast food. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. The death of Justice Antonin Scalia. Apple now says it's going to fight a federal order to unlock the iPhone of one of the San Bernardino shooters. Barack Obama will be the first sitting U.S. president to visit Cuba in nearly 90 years. Now for something you might not have heard, we are joined by Brittany Luce. She is the host of Sampler, which is a podcast on the Gimlet Network. She also co-hosts for Colored Nerds also the name of a podcast. Brittany, (laughs) what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Um, I'm going to tell you guys um, about basically, uh, I guess like a a, a weird little mini feud that led to penny gas. Penny gas. Literally a penny a gallon. What? And this happened in 2016. 2016, (laughs) February, this month, in the year of our Lord. What what happened? So there's this gas station in Toledo, Ohio, Mm -hmm. and they had this computer glitch um, in their pricing system that caused their gas prices to drop from, I think, like around $1.50 to just like 49 cents. Mm -hmm. And so the gas station across the street didn't have a glitch. But they were just like, oh, we see you dropped it to 49 cents. Mm-hmm. We're dropping it down to 17. Wow. <laughs> and it's so it just was like, like an arms race for cheap gas. It's a price war. And this is all over a glitch. So my understanding is that the glitch just like caused the pricing to continue to drop. Over the course of three hours, they get it down to a penny, <laughs> literally one cent per gallon. <laughs> Which feels like everybody loses, though, right? Because the more gas that's used, is there like a big ozone hole over Toledo now? <laughs> oh, um, no. Everyone has a tan. Yeah, they got sunburn. But... Hummer sales definitely <laughs> bounce back. That's yes. right. How come this stuff never happens at hospitals? You know, like, oh, what? They charge yeah. you this much for your emergency room? We're going to charge you only $50. Oh, to have a child without insurance, $100. We need, we, need to get this, we need to get this computer virus in different places. Yeah, where are the hackers when you need them? <laughs> Brittany, thank you so much for the small talk. Oh, my gosh. Thank you guys for having me. And now time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our internationally beloved history lesson with booze. First, the history part. This week, back in 1859, an engineer was born who delighted the world. But it didn't delight him back. Michelle Philippi tells the tale of his greatest invention. In the 1890s, George Ferris's life was up and down. It all started when he heard about a challenge to American engineers from the directors of the upcoming World Fair in Chicago. See, at the previous fair in Paris, a guy named Eiffel had built a tower you may have heard of. The Chicago Fair wanted something just as spectacular. That night, Ferris drew up plans for a massive revolving observation wheel 
80 meters tall, made of steel, and powered by steam engines, it'd give thousands of passengers at a time spectacular views of Chicago. Ferris said it would, quote, out Eiffel, Eiffel. The fair committee thought he was nuts. Clearly, this giant bicycle wheel would topple over in the Windy City's winds. But Ferris got his start building steel bridges for a living. He knew how to make a big metal structure safe. And when he offered to raise the construction costs himself, he got the go-ahead. Ferris's wheel didn't collapse. In fact, it safely delighted 38,000 passengers a day. It was the biggest hit of the Chicago Fair, which was no small accomplishment, considering other inventions that debuted there included Juicy Fruit Gum and Cracker Jacks. Best of all, at 50 cents a ride, the wheel made a fortune. But Ferris claimed he was rooked out of his share of the profits and spent years in litigation. He finally died penniless at age 37. But his invention lives on, most notably in Vegas, home of the biggest Ferris wheel on Earth. It's twice as tall as the original, but carries just half as many people. That was the history, and now for the drink to serve with it. I'm on the line with Paul Wildfeuer, bar manager at A10. That's a bar in the Hyde Park neighborhood of Chicago, just a stone's throw away from where George Ferris's wheel stood at the World's Fair. Paul, you heard the story. What cocktail did that inspire you to make? Well, we created a drink called the Gilded Sage. The Gilded Sage. This is kind of based roughly off a prohibition drink called the Bee's Knees, uh, but a lot of these ingredients are from the uh, Gilded Age era. For a bartender, the 1890s were the golden age of the cocktail. Mm. When they were creating all the kind of drinks that we now consider classics. All right, and first of all, what's the kind of base of the drink? The base spirit is a London dry-style gin. Got enough oomph to stand up to some strong ingredients present in the cocktail. All right, so what are those? Okay, so we have fresh-squeezed lemon juice to kind of cut away some of the booziness. Okay. We have a house-made syrup where we infused uh, sage into a honey syrup. Uh-huh. We also have something called kina, a aromatized white wine that has uh, quinine in it. Oh, which like, is, so kind of like tonic. Yeah, yeah. It has like a tonic-y note to it. And then uh, green chartreuse, which is a French ingredient. Uh, uh-huh. The Ferris wheel being kind of like a big, uh, almost middle finger to the uh, Eiffel Tower. <laughs> think we can do it better. Uh, this is kind of like the French connection, so to speak. Sure. That's a little ironic, too, because the Eiffel Tower is kind of like a big finger sticking up out of Paris. It, it most definitely is. Very, very French. Uh, it kind of is. Yeah. And then uh, to mimic the kind of Ferris wheel nature of uh, the drink, it starts down on the counter where you pour all the ingredients in. Okay. The vigorous shake up in a kind of circular motion, as is the uh, way of the current craft cocktail shake. Yes. Uh, as any good Ferris wheel does, this one's going to end down in a rocks glass. It will have a lemon wheel uh-huh. with a skewer through the middle that rests across both edges of the glass as a kind of spindle. <laughs> so it actually has a little functional Ferris wheel on the drink. That's excellent. Uh, does it have, a, what could you use, I guess, to create a little steam engine to power that axle and get it twisting? Uh, Maybe a music box. <laughs> you see, Fox, uh, you know, you can order a hot toddy and put it right next to it, you know, for a little bit of steam. Yeah, not bad for winter in Chicago. That's a good idea. <laughs> Paul Wildfeuer, bar manager at the restaurant A10 in Chicago. And Brendan Paul told me his grandfather 
actually worked at Bethlehem Steel in Pennsylvania okay. back when they made the steel for the original Ferris wheel. Oh, wow. That's true. And now he has a tasty drink, which he can toast him with. Yes, it's delightful. Although I think a steel worker would probably just empty out the glass and fill it with beer. <laughs> That's likely. He's worth his salt. But folks, for the rest of us, that recipe is at dinnerpartydownload.org. And now the soundtrack in which a great musician DJs your dinner party. And with us this week is Santi White, better known as Santi Gold. Yes. Her mix of electronica, catchy new wave hooks, and reggae rhythms has made her music a party standard since her debut in 2007. Her new album, 99 Cent, comes out this month. Here's Santi to spin some music from the spirit world. Hi, this is Santi Gold, and you're listening to my dinner party soundtrack. No sleep till! I've been living in Brooklyn for nearly 20 years now. It's definitely home at this point. So the first song of my dinner party will be called No Sleep Till Brooklyn by the most amazing Beastie Boys. the hook like who comes up with that you know what I mean like they're just they always came up with these hooks that were just so cool sounding and the way they yell it at you you're like you're just with them you know it's an explosion of fun the Beastie Boys first of all they were like my idols growing up I did a video to um, fight for your right to party at the mall when I was 12 and it was amazing, and my dad threw it away years later. Once, like, DVDs came out. <laughs> to this day, I'm so upset about it. But I love those guys, and I loved Adam Yauch so much. Okay, song number two, a David Bowie song, Ashes to Ashes. I love the the intro. Like I don't even know what instruments those are, but that ding 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 ding. ding. Do you remember Ricardo's beer? It's such a song. I'm not really a fan of small talk. You know, in the beginning of a party and everyone's kind of small talking. This is that moment where it's like all of a sudden everybody just lets go of all the like surface chatter and just really starts to connect with each other. That's the ashes to ashes moment at the party. It's just so smart, honestly. Like, I think David Bowie is just such a genius on so many different levels. And it's rare that you have such a, a huge, huge spirit. Everyone feels so connected to people like that. So my next song for the party is by Brenda Fossey, who is a South African pop singer. I have no idea how to pronounce this, but it's something like Vulindlela. It's really cool because I mean, I just love like 
the traditional African vocal tone and like the drum rhythms. But also, I love that she incorporates all these like pop elements and like um, the song particularly has almost kind of like 80s or 90s sounding synths. It's such a pop song and it's so beautiful. And then the video is also super fun because it's like a crowd of people just like having the best time ever, like we all are at my dinner party. So I thought it would be perfect. This is a dinner party of ghosts. In fact, no one that I've played is, is still with us, actually. And so this is a very special dinner party because we've got all these spirits with us and we're like dancing around the room with these great, great, great uh, musical spirits. We are following Brenda Fossey around the room. If I were going to play one of my own songs, which I rarely do, the song would be entitled Can't Get Enough of Myself because that's where I would be at if I decided to play my own song, I think. My son, he's not even two and he's got some moves. You know at the family party where like the little babies are dancing and everyone's like, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> This is that moment. This is that moment. And then your mom gets up and is the worst dancer and everyone's just like on the floor laughing. That's this moment. A dinner party soundtrack from Santi Gold. Her album 99 Cent hits stores next week. All right. Coming up, Adam McKay, Oscar-nominated director of The Big Short, lies about Will Ferrell mm -hmm. when the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, Public Radio's Arts and Leisure section. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Later, legendary filmmaker George Miller shares life lessons from equally legendary Jack Nicholson. And in a few minutes, Tracy Ellis Ross, star of the sitcom Blackish, tells us how to enrage her mom. Good. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. All right, and this week it's Adam McKay, a former head writer for Saturday Night Live. He is best known for huge comedies starring Will Ferrell, which he directed and co-wrote, including Anchorman and Talladega Nights. But his latest, The Big Short, is a drama, and it has earned him an Oscar nomination. That's right. Based on the nonfiction book by Michael Lewis, the movie follows a crew of misfit traders who anticipate the 2008 housing crisis before anyone else. Here's a clip in which an angry investment manager confronts one of those traders, played by Christian Bale. Hi, Lawrence. We have no confidence in your ability to identify macroeconomic trends. You flew here to tell me that? Why? Every, anyone can see that there's a real estate bubble. Actually, no one can see a bubble. That's what makes it a bubble. That's dumb, Lawrence. It's always markers. Mortgage fraud quintupled since 2000, and the average take-home pay is flat, but home prices are soaring. That means the homes are debt, not assets. So Mike Burry, a guy who gets his hair cut at Supercuts and doesn't wear shoes, knows more than Alan Greenspan and Hank Paulson. Yeah, Dr. Mike Burry, yes, he does. 
When I met Adam, I asked if, in light of his resume, he ever considered making this a comedy. No, no. I knew from the moment I read the book what I wanted to do with it, what it needed to be. Uh, I'm a film fan. I love all kinds of movies, even though I started with comedies. So there's no question I was looking to do something different, but this book definitely found me, and it was like, oh my God, this has to be made. And I don't think it was till like halfway through shooting that Kate Hardman, my script supervisor, was like, well, you're really, she's from Texas. Well, you're really doing something different, aren't you? And I was like, oh yeah, I never thought of that because you kind of just do what you need to do, you know? Well, one of the reasons the movie succeeds is because you manage to take a complex topic, make it approachable, uh, you make it engaging, you keep the pace up. You're the co-writer of the screenplay. Talk about some of the things you knew that you had to do to kind of keep the energy up for a movie like this. The one thing I would say is I, I put some rocket fuel on it. You know, I definitely, like, what I loved about the book was it was such a page turner. I read it in one night and I was like, this is crazy that a book about this subject is a page turner. You know, those Eric Larson novels are one thing about a serial killer at the World's Fair. That I can see as a page turner. But when I read this, I was just shocked at the energy in it. So... And I think you're right. I think there's a thing you get from comedy, which is there's no question I'm very comfortable with timing and pacing. So uh, part of the secret sauce is, of course, as you mentioned, Michael Lewis's book, Moneyball, another one of his books, also a really engaging film. You're a student of storytelling and, and this sort of thing. What what does he have? What is what is his knack that he's able to do this? Obviously, he's a great writer. There's no BS to his style. He's a little bit of a journalistic style. And then he just has a great ear for, a great eye for the characters we want to spend time with. And he's, he's just the guy, when you hang out with him, he's just really interested in a lot of things. And that energy comes across in his writing. And, and I think we kind of share that, actually, because I'm kind of that way, too. I'm, I know, I'm getting that vibe from you, too. Yeah, I'm interested in a lot of subjects. So, Do you think part of the energy also came from the seriousness of this topic? I mean, you were successful in Hollywood when this financial crisis hit, but... It was happening all around you. Everyone was touched by this. And did that kind of add some maybe intensity to all these these conversations or just kind of in getting the story right? Or I, I do. I, I think it's like a larger subject, which is why don't people care about this language in this world? It's, it's, there's about four or five things you have to know about when you're a human being on planet Earth. You got to know what crap not to eat and what crap to eat, right? You got to know how to take care of yourself, you know, scrub your teeth so they don't rot out of your head. You got to learn how to deal with other people in a way that doesn't always end in a fist fight or screaming. And then you got to know how the economy works. Otherwise, it's going to fall apart. You're going to lose your house and you're going to be like living in a tent. This has been the last episode of the Dinner Party Download. You now know everything you need to know. Yeah. And, you know, and you could chuck some spirituality, which I would still link with psychology in some way and mental health. And why is it that your average person on the street would say that's a boring subject when it's one of the three primary languages of power in the world? So that really was the central excitement was like, hey, guys, this is actually really cool. I'm the guy who did Talladega Nights, and I'm telling you, this is awesome. And that was really the energy that drove us every day. And, and you know, I did. I had family members who lost homes. I had lots of friends who lost jobs. So we knew the fallout of treating this subject like it's a bore and how dangerous that was. And certainly a large part of the movie is respectful towards that loss. And we tried to depict it in a, a sensitive way. But I think it's why it's a hybrid movie, because it's a combination of excitement about the subject, excitement about the discovery, and at the same time, tragedy. You know, Michael Lewis, renowned for making big ideas accessible. Um, 
this movie is getting lauded partially for making a difficult topic compelling. During the financial crisis, I worked for Marketplace, a business show, uh, and that's what we did every day was how do we explain this to the layman? And not to be cynical, but these are important things. We're adults. Shouldn't the layman bear some responsibility for understanding these complex topics? Well, now you've jumped to the second part of what we spent hours and hours talking about, which is, is American culture broken? Is American culture broken in the sense that everything is profit-driven? That every conversation is about selling a, prod, a, a product? That everything the news says is driven by a fear of losing ratings? And that somehow, and I don't know if that's intertwined with corporate ownership of news or whatever, but there became this kind of maxim that it's like, you don't want to get that complicated. They'll turn the channel. And it's just not true. It really just isn't. And... You know, the fact that we were able to take these really profoundly, seemingly boring subjects and like fill them with entertainment makes me think that ABC News could have spent five minutes describing this and could have used some nifty graphics to tell the public how it how it went. You know why they didn't. If, you know, if you're a little more paranoid, you would say corporate ownership. If you're a little more practical, which probably I am, I would say afraid of losing ratings and would rather do a story about a dog trapped in an old refrigerator. All right. Well, look, we have two center questions we ask our guests on the show. And the first question is, what question do you not like being asked at a dinner party? What question should we not ask you? Uh, is Will Ferrell as really in, as funny in person as he is in his movies? And this is because you've worked with him for, I mean, your careers are very intertwined. I have been asked that question, I'm going to say without exaggeration, 3,200 times. And it's a complicated answer because Farrell's a human being and sometimes he's serious. Sometimes he's pissed off. And then there's times, yeah, he's really funny and we goof around. And like at some point I told Farrell, I said, when people ask me what you're really like, or sometimes they'll ask me, like, tell me something about Will Ferrell I don't know. I said, do you care if I just lie? And about six years ago, he said, yes, feel free to lie anytime. So through the years, I've given crazy answers. And recently, I did one on the Huffington Post. I told people about his rare bird collection. And it actually got some pickup. And God, Farrell was so happy. He just called me. He's like, thank you for that. In a future interviewers, be warned, you've done improv forever. I mean, you cut your teeth doing Second City and on SNL. So you can probably, you're probably pretty fast on your feet. I, if you ask me what Will Farrell's really like, I'm going to lie to you. All right. So I'm not going to ask you that question. Um, I'll ask you our second question, which is tell us something we don't know. And this could be something that you haven't shared about yourself in interviews before or. It could just be an interesting fact about the world, like a piece of trivia. Ooh, I like that question a lot. All right, here's a weird thing. I bet you only about six people know about me. <laughs> I actually studied Hungar, Northern Chinese Shaolin Kung Fu for like four years. Whoa. When I was in New York City at SNL, as often happens, you get a job, and suddenly I started putting on a ton of weight. And, and the hours are brutal, notoriously. Notoriously brutal, but yet you're having a blast, and then you get weeks off, and I'm eating garlic knots and pizza, and I just get as big as a house. And I already was kind of a big guy. So I'm like, i got to work out. So my wife's like, well, do something that's cool that you actually want to do. And I was like, you know, I've always wanted to take a martial art. I ended up hooking up with this, this Sifu. That's what they call the teachers. Johnny V. Johnny Velasquez was his name. And it's a great Chinese name. Isn't it? Yeah, he was a Hispanic guy who was a Sifu at this place. He was a badass, but he was a good guy. 
and uh, I studied uh, subduing the tiger in the eye form. That was my kata. Has that come in handy as a director in Hollywood? No, it has never come in handy. I will tell you one funny story. My teacher, Sifu Johnny V, I asked him one time, I go, have you ever had fights where you've had to use it? And he had like three stories where he used it. But one of them was he was walking down the street and he saw a homeless guy getting beat up by like five kind of yahoos. And he was like, hey, stop it. And they're like, screw you. And they all came at him. And I'm like, well, what happened? He's like, what do you think happened? They beat the crap out of me. It was five guys. <laughs> Adam McKay, despite his martial arts training, with the help of a few friends, you can take him down. <laughs> that was my takeaway, for sure. Yeah. As long as he wasn't lying about all of that. Um, folks, Adam is up for an Oscar, but next week our whole show is dedicated to people and things who did not get Oscars. It's That's our right. first annual Notskers show. Learn more about it at dinnerpartydownload.org. to eavesdrop. Actor-producer Tracy Ellis Ross starred for years on the sitcom Girlfriends. Now she plays Bo, the beloved mom on the ABC comedy Blackish. That role just earned her her fifth NAACP Image Award. Today we overhear a tale involving her mom, who happens to be Diana Ross. Hi, my name is Tracy Ellis Ross, and I'm going to tell a story about a very poignant and terrifying moment in my journey of self-acceptance and how all parents worry that they might have ruined their child. Shortly after I left college and worked in New York for a little bit, I moved out to Los Angeles with the idea of becoming an actress. I was obsessed with Carol Burnett. I loved sketch comedy, and I I considered myself a pretty good storyteller. And my brothers, who are 15 and 16 years younger than me, were very entertained by my storytelling. And so I had sort of honed my skill with certain characters with my brothers. It was time for the holidays, so I thought that it would be a great idea for me to share laughter as a Christmas gift. I would, with my Hi8 video camera, put a face to some of these voices that I had been doing for my brothers in the storytelling. All these different characters had the task of saying happy holidays. So there was an older Jewish woman who was like, happy holidays, happy Hanukkah. There was a French woman who uh, was from saint Bar, and she was, uh, hey, happy holidays. Uh, there's two keys we give, so it's a one, two. And then one of the main characters that emerged that night was a character by the name of Madame Iver. She uh, evolved into an alcoholic life coach. And she really does want everybody to know that they are somebody. You are somebody. And I was like, this is my world, and I'm sharing myself, and this is me, this is me, and this is so funny. And I don't think it dawned on me that it was at all crazy or kind of came across like schizophrenic. I made this videotape, and I used my emergency credit card of my mother's to go to an editor and edit it. <laughs> I don't think that's what she meant by emergency. This VHS tape I had copied 52 times, sent it out to 52 people, and then when Christmas came around, I went home, and my cousins and my aunts and uncles, we were all at my mom's house, and we all were going to gather around the TV and watch my holiday VHS tape. And my mother... <laughs> came downstairs in the center of all of it 
and she said, can I speak to you? I followed her all the way upstairs, and when your mother sits you on the side of her bed and you are knee to knee, it is not going to go well. She paused for way too long of an amount of time, looked me in the eye, and finally said, how many people did you send this videotape to? And can we get it back? And I was like, I don't think we can get it back. But it's funny, no? And she just had this face of, I obviously have failed as a mother. In hindsight, it wasn't in any way a squashing of my creativity because my mom is not that. I think that it was more not wanting her child to be misunderstood. And honestly, my mom now loves the holiday tape and she references it on a regular basis as one of those moments that, you know, I found the courage to be myself. I will say, Madame Iver is so excited to know about Tracy Ellis Ross and all that she's done in her journey. I want women to know that they all have a song, and Tracy sings her song so loudly and without apology. Tracy Ellis Ross, you can watch her show Blackish Wednesdays on ABC. All right, coming up, Mad Max creator George Miller explains how he accidentally devised the new film genre, mm. and chef Roy Choi puts food back in fast food when the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the arts and leisure section of public radio. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, Chef Roy Choi proves fine fast food is not an oxymoron. But first, let's meet a great filmmaker. All right. And that would be George Miller. Families love his animated musical Happy Feet. And of course, his talking pig epic, Babe, Pig in the City. Hooray. But he's most celebrated for creating what many consider the greatest action movies ever made, the four Mad Max films. Yes, the latest installment, Mad Max Fury Road, is up for Oscars for Best Picture and Best Director. It continues the tale of Max, a tortured ex-cop who roams a post-apocalyptic world, kind of accidentally helping good people fight tyrants and also getting into insane car chases. This time around, Max's job is to aid a female hero, Furiosa, who is smuggling five wives away from the clutches of the warlord Immortan Joe. Joe pursues with his army of hot rods, and in this clip, the chase heads into a sandstorm where cars are sucked into the sky and explode like fireworks. Oh, what a day! What a lovely day! But really, you've got to see it to believe it. When I spoke to George, I started by asking about his inspiration for the first Mad Max, which in 1979 basically created the dystopian action movie genre. He made it while moonlighting as a medical doctor. It's interesting. There's usually a lot of forces that find their their way into a story. I know I was definitely interested in action movies and and doing it not where there's the talky bits of the movie and then there's the action bits, but integrating it. That was was number one. The story is Um, happening while the chase is happening in a way. Yeah. And number two... um, Growing up in remote rural Australia, there was a lot of death by autocide, just people dying on the road. And then working as a doctor years later in a large city hospital, I saw that even more. And somehow that got got to me. Being around road injuries? Yeah. And I thought, someone working with that a lot, I just wondered what that would do to somebody. I thought, what would it be like for a cop? (laughs) Plus, 
it was such a low budget, we couldn't afford to shoot block off city streets in the middle of the city. And so we shot in remote back streets, completely deserted streets where there are no other cars. So with all of that, I put in at the opening of the movie, I said a few years from now, as if it was some dystopian society, a failed society. So so at and, first you made it a post-apocalyptic world just so that you could shoot empty streets and get away with it. People wouldn't yeah, question it. Yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> how low the budget was. But I realized that Unwittingly, Max became a kind of archetype that is recognized in, in all cultures around the world. So in Japan, he was seen as a samurai, a lone samurai. And, you know, the French picked up that it was basically a Western on wheels and so on. Mm-hmm. But by the time Road Warrior or, or Mad Max 2 came along, I, it was much more conscious and it was much more deliberately about an oil crisis And also, it was much more deliberately the notion of the hero myth, Max, the reluctant hero. I'm guessing, actually, when you made the first Mad Max, you didn't conceive of it as a series. No. What keeps drawing you back to these characters in this post-apocalyptic world? I think probably the most seductive things about getting pulled into these stories is the notion that they are allegories. In the same way that I, I think the American Western are basically allegorical, fables, uh, morality tales, and so on. What's really interesting is you can draw on virtually all of human history across all cultures and see how the, the same things tend to recur in our modern day. We got as much of that into Mad Max Fury Road, the way tyrants control all the major resources at the expense of the many people being commodified in in Mad Max Fury Road everyone except the Morton Joe wears his logo on their back actually in this one speaking of using these myths to talk about important modern day issues feminism really comes front and center the plot is literally about a woman trying to free other women from a patriarch this warlord why was that so foremost on your mind this time around Well, it wasn't the primary thing at the get-go. The initial idea was to do virtually a continuous chase. And in this case, the thing that was to be in conflict was human. Five wives who are the breeders in the story. Initially, it was seven wives, but we couldn't fit them all into the cabin of a war rig, so it became five wives. (laughs) Yeah, you have to fit them Um, all in a Mack truck, basically. Yeah, yeah. And... Of course, they needed a road warrior, and it couldn't be male because that's a different story. So it was, it was a female road warrior. But what you're saying, this what you wanted the things that people were fighting over to be human. Why did you want that to be the case, and why did they specifically have to be women? In the road warrior, people are fighting over gasoline. Because again, it had to be very elemental. I thought, well, if it's human then it's not a a dispassionate thing. In a wasteland, you need someone who's apparently valuable in a world where people aren't necessarily very valuable at all. So the fact that um, these women are fertile makes them valuable. Yeah, because horribly. very few people are. And and the Morton Joe uh, needs a successor, an heir, which is something that always went on through, through history with various kings. That's a very, very common theme. So this came so, purely from kind of the need for narrative? This wasn't maybe inspired by something in your life or something happening in uh, the world in general? Well, it's inevitable that you're observing the world and what's in your life. I mean, I grew up in a very male culture, rural culture. I had no sisters, I had mm. br- brothers, went to all-boys schools. But subsequently in life, I have 
at least three wonderful women in my life. My wife, Margaret, who was the editor of the movie, mm. my mother, the kind of matriarch of the family, and, and a, a daughter. And they're all magnificent, self-contained, very, very strong women. So I've almost gone to that side. It's just naturally how my life evolved. Mm. But it's also that we noticed that in the zeitgeist. I remember one day listening to the radio down in Australia and Eve Ensler, the playwright, she wrote the vagina monologues and also is a great advocate in the Republic of Congo helping women who've been brutalized and destroyed <laughs> by all the stuff that's going on there. She has amazing programs where they go they take these women and basically teach them to become leaders of their world. And I heard her talking about this in the radio and I thought, this is exactly what Fury Road's about. Speaking of strong female characters in 1987, you direct the comedy of The Witches of Eastwick, a bunch of ladies beating the devil. Yeah. I'm sensing a theme here. You've described the making of that movie as pretty much a nightmare, but the saving grace was working with Jack Nicholson, you've said, who starred in it. Yeah. And you have said, quote, he taught me more about life than anyone else. How so? What did he teach you? Well, one was just purely at work, but it also applies to life as well. But one of them was... Um, that creative process in which is tremendous rigor that you really figure out as passionately as possible all the things you're struggling with to get, say, a particular story told, a particular performance. So endless conversations and so on. But in the moment of performance, abandoning yourself, you let everything go. And the two, even though paradoxical, is a very, very interesting balance. The best analogy is sport. Um, mm. And I think that's why Jack was so into the Lakers and so on. You <laughs> oh, think yeah. of the great skill sets of, of sportsmen and they drill and they work and they really hone that talent to the highest optimum degree. But now they're in the middle of a game and mm. they can't think about it. They can't think, oh, what did I drill? They're playing purely out of instinct. That balance between the discipline and surrendering yourself to the instinct, that was one big thing. I've heard he, he advised you also to always seem a little crazy. Is that right? Well, I, um, he said, George, I think there's a tendency here for people to mistake politeness with weakness. And he said, you've got to make them think you're a little crazy. And <laughs> How does and, that manifest? And, well, it's kind of a long story, but for instance, I, in an early meeting, they said, well, how, where can we trim the budget? This was for Witches of Eastwick. Okay. I sat in this meeting, I said, you know, I, do, I don't use a trailer because I'm always on the set or I'm with the actors in their trailer, and in Australia we don't have big trailers anyway. Now, that would seem logical. You could save money, but what it, they read it as that I was negotiable on absolutely everything. Mm -hmm. So if I needed 150 extras, only 75 would turn up. Uh -huh. I remember when I couldn't get any anybody to listen over a certain problem and, and we were heading for, a, you know, a costly mistake. I remember, I remember not turning up to set one day and suddenly everyone's calling me, what's wrong, what's wrong? I said, look, there's a problem I've been talking about for three weeks and no one's paid any attention. This is the problem. They certainly paid attention. And, of course, here I was saying, oh, okay, the more I behave badly, the more I'm rewarded. <laughs> uh, last question. When I look at your resume, eclectic isn't strong enough of a word. You've made Oscar-nominated dramas like Lorenzo's Oil, the Mad Max action films, animated movies for kids. What kind of film haven't you done? 
that you would like to do? Oh, I hadn't, <laughs> hadn't thought about it. I, I know, uh, you know, I always wanted to do animation because growing up as a kid, animation had such a big influence. Um, I, I'm not a dancer or a musician, but I always wanted to make a musical and Happy Feet, yeah. uh, you know, is, is a musical of kind. Of con- you said that Ben-Hur is one of your favorite action movies. Maybe we're going to see a George Miller-directed Roman <laughs> epic with a chariot race? Well, in a way, you know, Fury Road is almost an ancient Greek chariot race. <laughs> but yeah. George Miller, his film Mad Max Fury Road is up for 10 Oscars, including Best Picture and Best Director. And, Brendan, I got to say, I have a hard time reconciling that sweet, low-key guy Mm. with the just total insanity of his action sequences. Well, maybe for public radio, he plays down the crazy. You know what I mean? (laughs) It's it's the opposite of Hollywood. That's right. In public radio, you got to let him think you're a little mild. It's the reverse Nicholson. All right, you're listening to The Dinner Party Download, and it's time for the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. Actually, this week we're going to talk about fast food, a $200 billion a year industry in the United States. Yeah, I might have contributed to that in the form of the occasional filet of fish purchase. That's right, which I know for you is a guilty pleasure, but it's actually a staple of some people's diets Mm. because it's some of the only food in their neighborhoods and because shock... They like the taste. Oh, heavens. So recently, two world-renowned chefs, Roy Choi and Daniel Patterson, decided to fight fryer with fryer. You like that? (laughs) Nice. By creating a chain that serves food which looks, costs, and tastes like fast food, but is made from wholesome ingredients. Uh It's called Local. The first location just opened in Watts in L.A., and they plan to open more in equally distressed neighborhoods. When I visited, I asked Roy what makes their idea different. On one end, you have kind of a lecturing going on, like you need to eat healthy you need to eat nutritious, don't eat that, that's bad, eat this. But then what's when they're saying don't eat that, that's bad, and they say eat this, the eat this is usually not that delicious. It's usually like kind of boring and nasty, and uh, and kids don't, aren't feeling it. I, I remember I talked to uh, Alice Waters a couple years ago, and she was talking about if you give a kid an apple, it's kind of intimidating. It's just like this big round thing. That's, you gotta, it's impenetrable, but if you chop it up, maybe you put some sugar on it, it actually makes it more enticing. It sounds like you, have, you see this as a similar challenge. Definitely, and that's what uh, Daniel and I do is um, we just try to make food. And by making delicious food or approachable food or food that is fun in your life, I feel like us being chefs answers the other part of that question because we would never cook the food knowing that we were kind of like not using good or fun or delicious ingredients and so that part is not even a part of like our brain process we would naturally just pick vegetables or fruits to make flavors i think that part is in the bag there are some parameters you gave yourself and that's affordability and nutrition to a certain extent even though it's kind of in your dna as a cook what was the biggest challenge affordability wise what was the toughest thing to crack we do have these parameters two dollars four dollars six dollars we look at the price and then we say Obviously, for $2 or $4, we can't serve a whole breast of chicken. But what if we ground that chicken up, mixed it with sprouting oats, seasoned that whole thing up, emulsified it, then spread it back down, and then froze it, and cut it into shapes, and then fry it? Which would look, in our sandwich, which would look like an 8-ounce piece of chicken, but because it's mixed and emulsified, it's actually maybe only a three to four ounce piece of chicken mixed with grains and oats. And then, but then when you eat it, 
our science as a chef hopefully will translate where you don't notice the difference, but your body actually feels better. So as I ordered with your assistance before I sat down with you a burger, uh, some chicken nugs, uh, a sundae, and uh, a carnitas foldy. There it is. So if you look at that, all the stuff I've been saying, even if you don't believe anything I said, like if we just look at this, this is more powerful than my words. We wanted to do exactly like fast food. So you have the nuggets, which are chicken nuggets. But again, that's that, that force meat that I talked about. I'm going to try And what's the, so- what's the sauce? The sauce is a, an herb green goddess sauce mixed with the buttermilk mayo and then hot sauce. And so he, tasting it, I, I almost sense a little fennel, like a sweetness and yeah. other stuff. But also, it's just fried good. Yeah. <laughs> I get that just animal delight of biting into a fried chunk. Yeah, yeah. And then you, exactly. And the experience is just a nugget. So if you were a 16-year-old kid, you, didn't, you don't need to know that there are sprouting oats in there. And you don't need to know that that sauce has tarragon and chervil in it. You just need to know that that, that is bomb. Chervil would be something I'd call my friend to make fun of. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you just need to know that it's bomb. And then after you eat it a couple times, you may ask, you know, what's in this sauce? So then if we say chervil, they may laugh and then they may ask again. And then finally, then the bridge opens up. So I'm going to look at this foldy, which, so this looks something like Taco Bell or something, maybe. Yeah, uh, I actually, um, when we were designing it, I was thinking of the monster taco at Jack in the Box. So that was kind of what we thought here. So this is different sprouting beans and grains um, mixed together. uh, And this one has carnitas. So we take a whole pork shoulder, we cook it overnight with garlic, and then we make a salsa verde that we mix into it. And then that's filled and then griddled on each side, and then just served for two bucks. I'm going to try it right now. It tastes like real corn's going on in there. For sure. Talking about the grilling and stuff, I guess you also had to make this stuff that could be cooked fast and isn't too much work, right? Because you're going to have, you have lines and you have people coming in, and you have the promise of offering fast food. we got to serve this food in three minutes, you know what I mean? Otherwise, people start to create in an environment where it's already tough enough to, to, to kind of change the way people are eating, if we, don't, if we don't deliver, we open up that door for skepticism. The way we've really thought about it is um, a lot of our early visions were like short order grill, uh, Philly cheesesteak, you know, where it's just literally hot stone, a, a piece of hot metal, flip it a couple times, you get it in your hand. In order to do that, we have to take 99% of the work and do it behind the scenes. So slow, like any, any chef's kitchen. Slow cooking, building of flavors, layering of flavors, and that is what gives us the opportunity on the front end to not have any like uh, advanced level cooking going on. There's a lot of advanced preparation, but they don't have any salt and pepper. They don't have any knives or any cutting boards or anything like that that they, they have to do. All they have to do is literally take that foldy out, put it on a hot piece of metal, flip it, and then put it in a bag. It's almost like a classic franchise. You're delivered these things with very simple instructions about how to do them. Yep. I know I started this interview by saying we're chefs, but the infrastructure of local, we're trying to create as a fast food company. So imagine every step of the process being just like a Burger King or a McDonald's or a Taco Bell. Comes in the back door, they put it on their station, the one in the front kitchen literally presses a button or puts it on a thing, they put it in a bag and they go. The difference with us is the... The system is the same, but the food is real food. Chef Roy Choi, 
His new restaurant chain is called Local, and it really helps to see the pictures of the food Roy was talking about, just to see how much it mirrors typical fast food. So we've got those photos at our website. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. All right, and that's the Dinner Party Download for this week. Next week, just in time for the Oscars, it's our first ever Notsker special in which we celebrate people the Oscars forgot. From Maya Taylor, star of the movie Tangerine, to the guy who directed Virgin America's pre-flight safety video. Tune in for that. Today's show was produced by Jackson Musker with associate producer Nina Potok and associate digital producer Christina Lopez. Christian Coons and Carla Javier are our interns. Our engineers were Jake Gorski and Bill Lance. Larissa Anderson is our executive producer. And now before we leave you, here's One for the Road, a song to enjoy on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. It's called I Have Been to the Mountain, and it comes from Kevin Morby off his forthcoming record, Singing Saw. Bon appétit. Calling out, demanding answers, pleading skies, cry for hours, dropping peace bombs, collecting prayers, sky that mirrors, sky that stares, asking. Brendan Francis Noonan. I am Rico Galliano. Thanks for attending the dinner party download. All right, time to eat. Hmm, that looks like a interesting salad. Yeah, but it's made of cheeseburgers. Oh yeah? Yeah, it's from the place across the street from local. What's it called? Yokel. Oh.